0: Hello, this is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service with reports and analysis from across the world. The latest news seven days a week. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising.
1: How can AI solve your business challenges? What's the best way to lead a new sustainability strategy? Staying ahead in your career isn't about knowing the answers, it's about finding them. Learn how to find the answers you need by studying online with London Business School's world-class faculty and industry experts. Search LBS Online today. Hundred percent Rindfleisch aus Deutschland. Cheese, Zwiebeln, Ketchup, Senf. Majestät, Der Hamburger Real Cheese nur bei McDonald's. In allen teilnehmenden Restaurants nichts zu unseren Frühstückszeiten.
0: This is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service. I'm Valerie Sanderson and in the early hours of Sunday the 3rd of March, these are our main stories. In the skies above Gaza... Planes drop aid from the US for the first time since the conflict began last October. Russia reportedly listens in to top-level German military talks about supplying aid to Ukraine. Germany's Chancellor doesn't like it.
2: What is being reported there
3: is a very serious matter. And that is why it is now being investigated very carefully,
0: very intensively and very quickly. Chad's president says he'll stand in the May election following the killing of his main rival. Also in this podcast, we hear from the author of a new book on bad therapy and why it's not helping children
4: they now think of themselves as ill. Talk about their trauma, their PTSD from really mundane experiences.
0: These kids are so awash in psychopathology. Plus the new frescoes that have been discovered in the ancient Roman city of Pompeii. The U.S. has carried out its first airdrop of food aid into Gaza after months of intensive Israeli military operations against Hamas, which have left more than 30,000 people dead and displaced many more. The U.S. military said 38,000 meals were parachuted in as part of a joint operation with the Jordanian Air Force. On Friday, President Biden promised to step up aid to Gaza after at least 112 people were killed as crowds rushed a convoy on Thursday. In the face of a worsening humanitarian crisis, negotiations with Israel and Hamas to broker a six-week ceasefire before Ramadan are reported to have made progress. A Biden administration official said on Saturday that Israel had more or less accepted a deal. We'll hear more about those talks shortly. But first, our correspondent Paul Adams in Jerusalem told me more about the significance of the US airdrop.
3: In a way, it's a rather telling sign of the frustration that exists you know, with Israel's closest ally, the United States, that it feels compelled, perhaps reduced, to delivering aid in this way. I think what we're seeing is... Pressure on Israel coming from all quarters now to uh, address this issue properly, uh, to avoid a situation such as we saw on the edge of gaza city on thursday morning and the only way to do that is to flood the gaza strip with aid and that means opening more crossings getting more trucks in and establishing a ceasefire just as soon as possible i think those are the pressures that are being uh, brought to bear on israel and hamas as we speak
0: because of course israel is threatening a major offensive if all its hostages aren't released before ramadan which is just what just over a week away now
3: Yes, and Benjamin Netanyahu has said that the assault on Rafa will come either before or after a ceasefire. Again, there's a desire on the part of many to avoid that happening. If a ceasefire is put in place in the coming days, and there are just a few hints around today that we might be getting close again, then that will be six weeks of potential peace and quiet in which if everyone does what they're supposed to do, if Israeli hostages are released, if Palestinian prisoners walk free, then potentially it sets the scene for some kind of more permanent ceasefire. At the moment, there is just the slightest hint that perhaps this might come about in the the next few days.
0: And meanwhile, relatives of Israeli hostages have been marching today in Jerusalem, haven't they?
3: Yep, they've arrived here, they're holding a rally in Jerusalem, driving home their message that that should be the government's main priority, to get the 134 remaining Israeli hostages out of Gaza as soon as possible.
0: Paul Adams speaking to me from Jerusalem. So what other motivation could there be for the Biden administration taking this humanitarian action in Gaza now? Here's our Washington correspondent, Will Vernon.
5: It is an election year here, a particularly closely fought election campaign, particularly polarizing, at least it's shaping up to be that way. And Israel, Gaza, is becoming an election issue here. And President Biden has to walk a very tricky tightrope. On the one hand, he has to ensure that the US is supporting a key ally, Israel. On the other hand, he has to make sure he's not alienating progressives in his own party. Also, putting off traditional voters. And we saw that a few days ago in the state of Michigan when a Democrat primary election was held there. Over 100,000 people in Michigan actually voted uncommitted. Most of those were a protest vote against President Biden for his support of Israel, the U.S., hasn't called for an immediate ceasefire, like many of those voters in Michigan would like President Biden to. So that, I think, was a stark warning and a concerning sign for the Biden campaign that come November, this could become a problem among key voters in those crucial swing states such as Michigan.
0: Will Vernon in Washington. The UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs says a quarter of the population in Gaza, or nearly 600,000 people, are just one step away from famine. Peter Walsh of Save the Children has been based in Rafa in southern Gaza for the past five weeks, and he described what it's like there to Caroline Wyatt.
6: I've been in the humanitarian sector for some time and it's the worst situation I have ever seen. So in Rafa right now, you cannot turn around a single block without finding a destroyed apartment building or building and that's been severely damaged by bomb damage. And if there's any space, either on the pavements or the central reservation, these are now occupied by tents or temporary shelters where a desperate community of Rafa that once housed 200,000 is now housing over 1.2 million people. A really terrible hygiene and sanitation situation. The city is just not used to coping with so many people. The sewers are overrun. The water is contaminated by seawater. It's very hard to find drinking water and indeed very hard to find food. For any aid that we bring into Gaza, it has to be cleared by Israel. And we're seeing constant delays, whether that's through the Rafra crossing itself or getting permission to go north.
7: Presumably, the US and Royal Jordanian Air Force airdrops today must come as something of a relief.
6: We welcome any aid being brought into Gaza. However, airdrops actually complicate matters quite a bit. Firstly there's no team on the ground to receive those airdrops so therefore these food items are either landing in the sea or landing on the land and it really is down to the survival of the fittest. It is not going to reach those that desperately need it either those that are young, the elderly it's not going to reach those that are chronically ill. It really is going to be whoever can run to the airdrop the quickest plus it's not coordinated we have a very well well-practiced, very professional humanitarian coordination system, and none of these airdrops go through that system. So therefore, we're not able to support and make sure that those that need the aid items the most actually get what's needed. We absolutely need all crossing points open now. We need full unfettered humanitarian access, and Israel must support this We've already heard of 10 children dying of starvation. That's only the children that have managed to get to health facilities. There are many more out there in the communities that do not have access, are probably acutely malnourished, and unfortunately, some that have died.
0: Peter Walsh of the charity Save the Children. Next to a story that bears all the hallmarks of a Cold War spy thriller. State-controlled Russian media have released audio of a confidential conversation between German officers discussing the potential supply of powerful Taurus cruise missiles to Ukraine and the possibility of using them to attack the strategic Kerch Bridge between Russia and occupied Crimea. The BBC has so far not been able independently to authenticate the recording. But it's already proving to be embarrassing for the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, since he's insisted he won't supply the powerful German-made missiles to Ukraine. Speaking in Vatican City on Saturday, Mr Scholz insisted there would be a quick and thorough investigation.
3: What is being reported there is a very serious matter and that is why it is now being investigated very carefully, very intensively and very quickly. That is also necessary.
0: The Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, had this response when asked about the claims at a security conference in Turkey.
1: I don't
8: know how to describe what happened, but our NATO colleagues are obviously involved And I don't know how they would explain it to their own people.
1: people.
0: Our world affairs correspondent, Caroline Hawley, told me more about the mystery tape.
9: It's 38 minutes long. It's an audio recording. It was posted on the Telegram channel of the head of the state-run Russian Today television station. It's a conversation, apparently, between senior Air Force officers discussing the supply of long-range Taurus missiles from Germany to Ukraine and whether they can hit the Kirsch Bridge, a strategic bridge that links Russia and illegally annexed Crimea. Now, a spokesperson for the German Defence Ministry has confirmed that a conversation was indeed intercepted, but said that they couldn't say if any changes had been made to the recording that was published on social media. But it's fair to say it's authentically a leak of German soldiers that's what the defence ministry seems to be confirming yes and of course this is awkward for the German government because Ukraine has asked for these Taurus weapons and the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz he's so far refused he fears dragging Germany deeper into the war and it raises many questions about the security of the meeting with Der Spiegel magazine actually saying it was held by video conference not on a secret internal army network. Ah so that's how this leak might have happened if it wasn't on a security network. I think that will be part of the investigation but that is certainly the report in Der Spiegel.
0: Is there any sense do you think that this smacks of sort of Russian mischief making?
9: Well, yes, I think it raises lots of questions. How did the Russians get hold of it? As we mentioned just then, was the network secure enough? The other key question that people will be asking is what else may the Russians have got hold of? And then the other question is, why is it being published now? Is it an attempt to make it harder for Olaf Schultz to reverse his decision not to supply these weapons? Caroline
0: Hawley. Results are starting to come in from Iran's elections. According to unofficial reports, the turnout has been the lowest since the Islamic Revolution back in 1979. All the parliamentary candidates were vetted in advance by the state's Guardian Council, and many reformers were disqualified from standing. Our correspondent Caroline Davis has been given rare permission to report from Iran inside tajrish
10: bazaar vendors are preparing for naruz the new year celebrations that are a little over two weeks away the alleys are packed with shoppers the results of yesterday's vote are still trickling in but few of the young people we talked to voted each has their own reason one woman speaks with a quiet disappointment I didn't participate in these elections because I lost friends in the protests last year. These are the countrywide protests sparked by the death of Masa Amani after she was arrested by the morality police, accused of not following the country's strict dress code. The demonstrations were brutally put down by the authorities. I believe we shouldn't participate in these elections and stay united. I don't feel good about this election because a lot of people were affected. But I'm sure everything will change and it won't stay like this. Almost everyone we speak to has economic worries. Shopkeepers who say that despite working long hours for years, they still can't afford to buy a car. Others who've seen friends leave the country for opportunities abroad. Some are struggling to find a job. All say they don't see the point of voting. Iran's authorities have dismissed talk of low turnout as Western media propaganda. The final figure has not
0: yet been released. Caroline Davis. Energy-rich nations from the global south have signed two key partnership agreements at the end of a major summit in Algeria. The 20 nations, which make up the Gas Exporters Forum, hold more than 70% of the world's natural gas reserves. Here's a letter Naismith.
7: As the energy industry confronts waning demand for oil and gas and competition from renewables, the Gas Exporters Forum is promoting natural gas as the clean fuel for the future. It's a powerful bloc, with Russia, Qatar, Iran and Venezuela among its ranks and the bulk of the world's gas reserves. These two new agreements expand further into Africa and East Asia to improve energy security and promote sustainable development. Algeria, the summit's host, is already Europe's second biggest pipeline supplier. The forum has ambitious plans to further expand that market.
0: Electra Naismith. In her new book, Bad Therapy, Why the Kids Aren't Growing Up, the American author Abigail Schreier argues that modern-day parenting is failing too many children. She says youngsters are being taught to put too much focus on their emotions, so promoting helplessness rather than resilience. Paul Henley asked her why 21st century children in the West aren't learning how to grow up.
4: I think it's related to the amount of therapy they've been inundated with. They now think of themselves as ill. They are so pathologized. They talk about their trauma, their PTSD from really mundane experiences. Also, the way they were raised by therapeutic parents, the interventions in schools, these kids are so awash in psychopathology. So when you don't feel well, you don't feel up to the responsibilities and demands of adulthood. That's really unfortunate because the responsibilities of adulthood are actually the cure for adolescent pain and angst.
8: Right, so your definition of therapy is very wide because obviously hardly any children, especially outside the US, actually having paid therapy. But you mean a style of parenting and education, you widen it to that?
4: Actually, it isn't my definition that's wide. If you look at the American Psychological Association, it's incredibly broad. It seems to mean any talk of feelings between a practitioner or clinician and a patient. Styled as medicine. And in fact, a lot of the interventions they're doing in schools are being run by mental health professionals in schools. They claim that what they're doing is toughening these kids' emotional and psychological fortitude. In fact, I think they're doing the opposite. And yes, also by the way that they're guiding parents.
8: So presumably you believe that kids need to be socially strong and emotionally strong. Why exactly?
4: If you want to know why a population needs to be strong, you really need nothing better than to go back to your own history and see what people were able to get through and triumph over and get on with their lives and form families and hold down jobs, even through tremendous adversity.
8: So in what ways are today's kids weak?
4: In America we have this epidemic of kids thinking that they need mental health days off of work if they don't like the president who was just elected. These kids are asking for accommodations in school for every type of minor emotional distress. And they're showing up on our university campuses. Not only are they filled with psychological medication and psychiatric medication, it is absolutely pervasive in Britain as well. These kids do not feel they can cope with the normal vicissitudes of life. And that is not. Not the key to happiness. Long-term contentment very much requires that they feel efficacious in the world, that they feel that they can. We need to give them that message because truly we are built to be resilient. We don't need the constant intervention with normal distress.
8: A lot of old-style parenting surely consisted of shut up, deal with it, pull yourself together, possibly also not particularly good for mental health.
4: One of the oldest psychological studies we have goes back to the 1960s, and it's from Diana Bomerand And she was curious about parenting styles and the outcomes. And this study has been replicated hundreds of times since. And what she found was that authoritative parenting, not authoritarian, which is cold and unloving and rule-bound, but authoritative, meaning being the authority with your children, laying down rules, but also being loving and caring and receptive to what they need while still holding authority in your home. That produces not only the most successful kids, but the least anxious, the least depressed, and the most satisfied
0: over a lifetime. Abigail Schweier, speaking there to Paul Henley. Still to come on the Global News Podcast.
7: There are certain no-nos when you're older. You don't wear mini skirts. 80-year-old knees ain't pretty. Wear colour because you're older doesn't mean you have to put on sackcloth and ashes.
0: Remembering the
7: American fashion icon Iris Apfel, who's died the age
0: of 102. The president of Chad, General Mohamed Deby, says he'll stand in May's election, just days after his main rival, Yahya Dillo, was shot dead. Mr Dillo's supporters claim he was assassinated by the presidential guard. On Saturday, the campaign group Human Rights Watch called for an independent investigation. General Deby seized power three years ago after his father died fighting rebels, and he still hasn't fulfilled a promise to return Chad to civilian rule. In a BBC interview, the leader of one of the other opposition parties in Chad, Nasir Khosameh from the Party of Patriots, said Mr Dillo was killed because he was going to enter the presidential race.
1: They opted for their best known method of repression to stop us from contesting the next election, to stop us from telling the Chadian people to get rid of this uh, military junta and uh, liberate Chad from dictatorship. That's the reason for killing Yahya Dillo And it's a message. To other opposition leaders, if you want to contest this election, then you will be the candidate to die. That's the message.
0: I asked our correspondent in West Africa, Azizat Ola Uluwa, what more Human Rights Watch had to say about Yaya Dilo's death.
11: The organisation says that the circumstances surrounding uh, his killing are quite unclear because the organisation uh, got some photos from reliable sources, according to uh, the HRW, and it showed there was just one single bullet to Yaya Dillo's head that killed him, meaning that it was suspicious. And the organisation is afraid that this may empower the government and authorities to target more opposition figures if it's not investigated.
0: And tell us about Yayadillo
11: because interestingly... He's the cousin, isn't he, of the President Mm. Mohamed Debi? Some analysts will tell you that this didn't come as a surprise because, you know, he was a a leading voice when it comes to criticizing the military government led by General Mohamed Debi. And it's not the first time that he's been targeted by the authorities. Just two years ago, his house was attacked and um, his mother was uh, reportedly killed in that attack, and some family members were also injured as well. He was able to grow some level of support among the people because the military leader, had promised a transition to civilian role, but he reneged on that promise twice, extending it by two years until this year. Many people saw him as the main challenger to Mahatma Debi, you know, going into the May six election, although he had not come out to declare officially that he was going to stand for the election. But many people said that he was already preparing to announce it officially.
0: Well, you mentioned that this election, scheduled to take place in May, is meant to mark Chad's
11: transition to civilian rule How likely Mm. is that now, do you think? So maybe before Mohammed Debi announced today, we could have said that it may not be likely. But now that he's come out to say that he would stand, we won't be surprised that elections will hold as scheduled. Some are already saying that it was a convenient incident that happened three days ago, you know, talking about the death of Yaya because he would have been the main challenger and might have even defeated him at the poll. And now that is out of the way, the cost is simply clear for him. And also, it's seems that Muhammad Debi has softened every institution that may pose a problem for him to make things easy for him. So many analysts are saying that it's going to be like a walk in the park at the end of the day come May 6th for Muhammad Debi.
0: Azizat Ola uluba in our previous Global News podcast, we reported on a new study into how Indian elephants bury and mourn their dead. Well, now we're turning to Sri Lanka, where being run over by a train is a risk faced by wild elephants there. Now construction work has started on an underpass for the animals to stop them dying in a train crash. Here's South Asia Regional Editor Anbarasan Etherajan.
2: Dozens of elephants have been killed and injured by speeding trains in Sri Lanka every year as they attempt to cross railway tracks in search of food and water. Sri Lanka is home to an estimated 5,000 elephants and there are many corridors or a strip of natural habitat that enables the movement of the giant mammals between the two habitats. But in some places, train and road networks cut through these corridors. Similar elephant underpasses exist in countries like Kenya and India, that have allowed safe crossing for elephants along busy road and rail networks. But conservationists say, apart from these underpasses, other measures should also be taken, including reducing the speed of the trains while traversing through forest areas and fitting high tech sensors on engines to alert drivers to elephants near the tracks.
0: Anbarasan Etherajan for the past 10 years, Indian politics has been dominated by the Hindu nationalist Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his BJP party. Part of its success is down to the grassroots and social media outreach programmes masterminded by political strategist Prashant Kishore. He's been talking to the BBC's Samira Hussein about the success of the BJP and the decline of the opposition Congress party as India gears up for a general election this year.
12: Congress is like an old building, so very difficult to maintain because of the way it is built. Compared to that, BJP is a newly structured villa. Things are more organized, in control. They know who does what. The accountabilities are better defined and therefore less opportunity for anyone to game the system. So all these things, plus the decisiveness with which they have gone ahead, when you win, a lot of these things look stronger than what it is. BJP got 38% vote in 2019. BJP at its peak has got roughly about 1,700 assembly constituencies under their belt. In India, we have almost 4,400. Congress at its peak used to get 2,200 to 2,500 MLAs across India. So Congress had a larger footprint. They had a bigger mandates than what BJP has today. But unless Congress reincarnates itself, goes back to the drawing board and get out of this mindset that these things can be fixed with the short-term corrections, I don't think there is great hope for Congress in near term.
4: So why is it that so many people do vote in favor of Mr. Modi?
12: Because he's the leader, He is representing center-right, and he has built this uh, political aura and cult around him, which is primarily based on four fundamental things. One is this Hindutva ideology. Second is this new narrative of neo-nationalism. And the third is this direct delivery of services and benefits. So the lot of schemes that used to be schemes run by governments, departments and different names are all now being presented and repackaged. Some are newly done also as the benefit coming directly from the prime minister. And the fourth is this whole political electoral muscle which BJP has built. So these four things put together, the ideology, the nationalism, the direct beneficiaries and electoral and political muscle. Mr. Modi is the glue which binds all these four together. And that's why he's becoming so powerful. And so anyone who wants to take him on electorally has to work. And defeat him in at least two or three of these legs has to move. Do you think Congress can do that? Yes, they can do this, provided they get their act together. If there is one party which has the space and opportunity to do this, it's Congress. But not the Congress which we see under present leadership. One has to realize that the decline of Congress is not a short-term phenomenon. Congress has not won India since 1984. After that, Congress has won three elections. Congress has been in government for 15 years, but all those governments were either coalition government or in minority government. Congress has not been able to win post-1984. Why? Why? Because there has been a structural problem in the way Congress organizes itself, the way it functions as an organization, the way it reaches out to the public, the masses, the way it fights elections, their engagement with public is uh, not something which is very inspiring. And unfortunately, they have not been nimble enough to understand, appreciate and take corrective measures that is required.
0: Political strategist Prashant Kishore speaking there to Samira Hussain. Archaeologists who are excavating buildings in the ancient Roman site of Pompeii in southern Italy have discovered several vibrant new frescoes. It follows the recent uncovering of a collection of statuettes, as Isabella Jewell reports.
13: For the first time in almost 2,000 years, a set of twins sees the light of day. Their names are Phrixus and Heli, and they're the subject of a beautiful fresco which has just been uncovered in the ruins of ancient Pompeii. The Roman city was destroyed in 79 AD by a volcanic eruption. After decades of excavations, it's now one of the most visited archaeological sites in the world. The collection of wall paintings was found during restoration work on the House of Leda. Among the cache are several still lifes and portraits of women, but the most striking new discovery depicts a scene from the Greek myth of Phrixus and Heli, in which the siblings flee their stepmother on a magical ram with a golden fleece. Despite hiding under volcanic ash for millennia, the colours, mustard yellows and sea greens are vibrant. Phrixus rides the ram as his sister falls into the sea on the verge of drowning. An ancient myth, but still relevant today, as described by Gabriel Zuchtrigel, director of the Pompeii Archaeological Park.
12: The
5: myth of Phrixus and Heli is widespread at Pompeii, but it's also a fairly modern story. We see two refugees at sea, a brother and sister, forced to flee their country.
13: This find is one of a score of discoveries at Pompeii in the last 12 months and the park's director hopes that the public will soon be able to see them in the flesh. Isabella Jewell And finally, she described
0: herself as a geriatric starlet and now the textile designer and fashion model Iris Apfel has died at the age of 102. The New York socialite only reached the peak of her fame in her 80s and 90s but was a familiar face at Paris fashion shows for more than half a century. Famous for her flamboyant costume jewellery, signature big round glasses and bright red lipstick. The BBC's Jenny Murray spoke to Iris Apfel in 2015 and asked her about her fashion philosophy.
7: I do what I feel like doing, when I feel like doing it, and it comes from the gut. It's totally non-intellectual. You're festooned in accessories, beautiful black bracelets, huge black beads. How important is your jewellery? Oh, accessories are more important to me than clothing. I think accessories are exceedingly transformative. If you wear simple architectural clothes, you can completely change your look by changing your accessories. My mother worshipped at the altar of the accessory. And as I grew up as a child of the Depression, money was scarce and we had to be quite careful about what we bought. And she always preached basic, simple architectural clothing and you put your money into accessories, and you could change your look, and with one little black dress, you could have dozens of different outfits. Your glasses are also very important to your look. They are huge. How did that start? Even as a child, I thought spectacle frames were a great accessory, and every time I saw a pair... I'd buy them and throw them into a box. I didn't need glasses, but i put on the frames because I thought they were so attractive. And then when I did need glasses, I said, well, I've got all my frames, why buy any? And I took out a huge pair and had the lenses put in. And I put them on and everybody would say to me, why are you wearing them so large? And I got annoyed, so I would say, the bigger to see you. <laughs> and that would shut them up. You are very specific about age appropriate attire. What's right when you're young and what's right when you're old? If you know who you are, there are certain things you can pull off, but I think there are certain no nos when you're older. You don't wear mini skirts because 80 year old knees ain't pretty. You don't wear long hair. You don't go heavy on the makeup. You cover up as much as possible. Wearing a strapless dress or a low-cut back is a big no-no. If you can wear colour, wear colour, because you're older doesn't mean you have to put on sackcloth and ashes. Good fashion is an art form and a reflection of what's going on or what went on in the world. One of the things you've said of now is individuality is lost. I hate it. What do you mean by that? Well, the world is getting more and more homogenised. I know it's my view that the worst of America is always the first to be exported. Everybody looks alike, everybody talks alike, everybody thinks alike. In New York, you can almost tell a woman's zip code by what she's wearing. And I guess it's the fault of the media. They're constantly bombarded with looking a certain way and being made to feel that getting old is a dreadful, dirty thing. But I think you can look attractive as you age. And to try to hide your age is... To me, ridiculous, if God is good enough to give you extra years, why the devil don't you want to enjoy them? Words of wisdom
0: there from the American fashion icon Iris Apfel, who's died at the age of 102. And that's it from us for now, but there'll be a new edition of the Global News Podcast later. This edition was mixed by Philip Bull. The producer was Emma Joseph. The editor is Karen Martin. I'm Valerie Sanderson. Until next time, bye-bye.
1: How can AI solve your business challenges? What's the best way to lead a new sustainability strategy? Staying ahead in your career isn't about knowing the answers, it's about finding them. Learn how to find the answers you need by studying online with London Business School's world-class faculty and industry experts. Search LBS online today.
10: Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles, from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.